welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, Paul's writing to this church. We'll talk about the church some later. He says, I beg or I beseech you, I urge you, brethren. He's talking to the Christians at the church there because Christians make up the church. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. I'm not going to preach this out later, but he, go, he goes right ahead and he blames Jesus from the get-go. He said, I'm about to tell you what to do, but don't blame me. I'm the messenger. Blame God. This is under the authority of Jesus that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. Nobody think anything. I haven't heard anything. That's not where this is from. But that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Wow, that's a tall task in a Baptist church. Then he says why he just asked this. For Chloe has told on you. No. For it's been declared unto me, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, probably a leader, a significant leader in the church in Corinth, that there are contentions among you. That's the politically correct way to say y'all are fighting. But this I say that every one of you says, I'm hearing that this is what you're saying. One saying I'm of Paul, one says I'm of Apollos, one says I'm from Cephas, and the other of Christ. Then he asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God, he says, that I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. Those are the next two sons of the youth pastor and Lizzie. <laughs> Charles, Crispus, and Gaius. I like it. Can't read Christmas without thinking of KFC. Personally, that's me. <laughs> Plus, women makes you hungry, and I'm ready for lunch. Lest any of you should say, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you at these, except these guys, so that you can't say my name. I baptize you in my name. And I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know nobody else that I baptize from you, Church of Corinth. Then he says, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Why? For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. But unto us, those of us that are born again, but to those of us who are saved it is the power of God. Amen. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. May I preach what you've laid on my heart clearly, theologically sound, so that we can leave here today closer to you, so that we can leave here as Christians closer to you, growing in grace and knowledge. And may the words that are preached today and the words of your scripture pierce the hearts through the Holy Spirit of a person here today who may be perishing. They would see their need 
to accept your gospel, accept the payment of your son on the cross for their sins, and have a relationship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I told you last week as I preached a passage from the Sermon on the Mount about the two paths or the way of life that I'm grateful on one hand that God's word is clear when he represents and speaks of the twos in scripture, two paths. There's two types of people in the world. There's two ways, there's two foundations, there's two types of prophets, and Jesus makes it very clear that you're on one of two paths. You're headed one of two directions. Every person on the planet, every person in this room is headed to one of two destinations. Every person in this room is in the present tense living in one of two conditions. According to this text, you're living perishing or you're living saved or maybe a better translation, being saved. You're in the process of perishing which means to die without hope. The word perish there is absolute destruction. That's what that word perishing means. You're either living currently a life, present tense of active, total destruction, or you're living a life as a born-again Christian who has been positionally sanctified in a sanctifying state. Oh, is that too theological? I thought I was saved and going to heaven. You are, but there is positional sanctification. I I didn't know I was going to have to preach this. This is like seven more minutes. So you look like you know what I'm talking about, and I don't. There's positional sanctification, and then there's progressive sanctification where we grow in grace and knowledge of God, closer to Him, closer to His Word, more like Him. And then one day there'll be Justification, I mean, not just, sanct, not sanct. Glorification, I was waiting. When we are like Christ, when we are like him. In case you, nobody's told you lately, you're not there yet. We're all being saved. We're all saved if you're born again. If you died right now, you go to heaven. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. But some are going to be present with the Lord at a different level of sanctification than others. Based on how many years you've been a member of a church. No. So you're in two positions today. Everybody. As Paul started this off, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you, what God says is that every person on the planet, including those of us here today, are we are either living a life, present tense, actively headed for total destruction, which is how you were born and how I was born, or we're headed for total, absolute glorification, eternity with him. Perfection, like Christ. That's the only two present tense places you can be today. And he says here, there's only two. And I want to talk about this subject, the controversial cross. Unless you are paying attention this morning, 
and you think we got together in a huddle on Wednesday and decided how to plan this service, you would be incorrect. Last night, yesterday afternoon, I looked at the order of services. And by the way, on Saturdays, I already pretty much know what I'm preaching. And I said, you got to be kidding me. Barry stole my topic. And if you know Barry, Gary, he's planned out the next 14 years of services. So we didn't get together and he didn't steal my topic. The cross of Jesus has always been and always will be controversial. And just in the same way there are two types of people, there are two views of the cross. And they can't coexist in peace. Two views of the cross from two types of people. There's no other views. There's no other types of people. And Paul writes to a church who is supposed to be made up of believers to address this. And so we, to, to start off and to understand really this corrective letter, there's, not a, there's some theology in this letter, but it's not a theological letter. It's a letter from a pastor who founded the church writing to them because he's heard from someone that there's some divisions and he's writing to correct them and to help them. Correction in biblical terms should not be looked at as God is mad, he's correcting me, he's spanking me, and he's upset with me, and he's mad at me, and all hope is lost. Correction, when God corrects, when Paul corrects through the inspiration of God, it should be looked at as when we correct our children. We correct them because we care. We correct them because we love them. We correct them because we want what is best for them. This would be like J. Harold Smith, who founded this church in 1940, finding out that we've got some contentions and some divisions. By the way, he's not going to do this, just in case you're under, he's not, he's present with the Lord. So this would be even more eye-opening if he did. But it would be like the founder of this church writing saying, hey, I've heard there's some problems going on in the church. And that the pastor gets up and says this morning, I have a letter to address you all, including myself, from the founding pastor of this church, and he's addressing and correcting some issues. This is what's happening. And he's doing it because he wants to correct the church so that the church can be healthy and the church can be about the business it's supposed to be about and not focused on these little schisms within the church. Now, I remember being just a member, I remember being on a, a staff, but not the pastor, and hearing pastors and our former pastor get up and say, I hadn't heard anything. And I was like you, and I was like, has he? <laughs> but I'm now finding myself saying, I haven't heard anything. This is not about schisms. By the way, I think if there's a schism in the church, and I know about it as the pastor and under shepherd to keep God's church healthy, I should address it, not from a platform and say, hey, you know who you are. I don't think that's the appropriate way to do that. So I would address it with the people, as difficult as that may be. This is not why I'm here. And Paul writes this letter to a church who has been, who has been influenced by the world. 
You have to know a lot about Corinth. We'll just look at a little. Corinth was um, a special place. It was a kind of a a wealthy city. It's in southern Greece. It's on the north-south trade line, trade route. And so there's a lot of people and there's a lot of money. And, and I don't know if you figure this out. If you get uh, a lot of people and a lot of money together, you got a lot of problems. If you get a lot of money and a lot of different viewpoints from a lot of different people, you get a lot of problems. Welcome to the United States of America. This is exactly why we have the conditions we have. We've got a lot of people with a lot of different viewpoints, and there's a lot of money. Until you look at the debt clock, and then you understand there's probably not as much as we think. And that was not encouraging. I'm sorry. Some of you stock folks are like, have you seen how much money? I'm sorry. But we've got a lot of problems because we've got a lot of people, and we've got a lot of different opinions. And when a lot of people with a lot of different religious opinions find themselves in the same church, you can have some schisms. I probably was going to say this later, but there's a reason why, now, please understand and nobody get upset, there's a reason there are different denominations. Now, there are some unhealthy reasons why there are denominations, but there are some healthy reasons why there are denominations. I'm not going to, I'm just going to say we're a Baptist church, which is the denomination we are. We happen to be a specific Baptist church from the, because we're from the South. No, we're Southern and we're proud. No, we're part of the Southern Baptist or if that offends you, the Great Commission Baptist Association and Convention. And there's a reason why you have bylaws and constitution and articles of faith. By the way, the Southern Baptist church and their articles of faith, which are public to the world, are very biblical and very doctrinal. That should be your policies and bylaws and constitution. It should be biblical. And they are. And when we stray from that, we fix it. In the 80s, I was talking to somebody this week, and they're a a public official that's pretty highly visible, and we were in the right place at the right time, and we were answering questions, and we were talking about those things and talked about even in the 70s and 80s when the Southern Baptist tried to go super liberal. And actually, Justin alluded to that in his sermon the other day in his introduction. And there were some some men of God who were sound in their doctrine and knew the Scriptures and stood bold in the face of criticism and slander and said, we're not going to let this happen. And it shifted back into the right course. And that should be the case anytime. It ought to be the case locally in a church. If I get up here and start preaching something that's not biblical, somebody in authority, someone who's been appointed in authority should approach me and say, this isn't right. And we should fix it. If this church starts doing something that's anti-Bible or anti-Christ or worldly in nature, which is, then we ought to fix it. And so Paul is addressing this and said, hey, you guys have let let these people affect you and you've been grabbing on to every little opinion that you like and it affected this church where this church became the epitome of a worldly church. Now, I'm going to address this real quickly. We have, and locally, we have identified churches sometimes as worldly churches. That's scary because we all have opinions. Just because you or I was to say, in my opinion, that's a worldly church, doesn't necessarily mean biblically it's a worldly church. 
Okay, so don't, let's not think too much of ourselves to think that our authority is the final authority and what we say matters. I cannot believe they had dry ice in there. That is a worldly church. <laughs> now that's my opinion that it's a worldly church, but that doesn't mean it is because there are times that uh, they want to show certain lights and certain things and the fog helps. <laughs> I'm being comical and you appreciate that I can tell but there were there have been times where uh, stringed instruments were worldly brought a guitar in here we had the mullet man up here playing the guitar his place is unwit liberal but they've had I probably I'm not gonna do anything they've had that stringed instrument in the church for a long long time but that looks like the devil when he brings a guitar in here. Worldly church. Drums. Oh, my goodness. I can go through the examples, but we're following. We're tracking along. No, worldly churches are when the world influences the church theologically, doctrinally, and anti-biblically. And that's when we ought to put up our guard and say, this is not going to happen. We're not going to let some worldly philosophy or worldly religious philosophy come in and permeate this church. We're going to stay with the Bible. And if what they believe disagrees with the Bible, we're going to go with the Bible. It makes it real simple. I've got a lot of opinions and you do too. But if they contrast scripture, they don't hold any authority. And that's how, this is the church we're talking about. It's a worldly church. They've allowed immorality to be okay in the church. Why? Because the world allowed it. This is not part of it, but you look intrigued, and I don't want to flesh this out as much, but just because the world allows things to happen doesn't mean the church starts to turn a blind eye to it. There are things that are sacred in Scripture. And we don't turn and say, well, the world's letting people buy with it. This is happening. That's happening. That's not a big deal anymore. So we'll just kind of turn our heads to it. Not that big of a deal. This is what's happening in the church of Corinth. It was affected greatly by its culture and practices. It was in need of correction. There's a word that was used, I'm told, I've never used this word, and I wouldn't encourage you to use it because it sounds pretty bad, but Corinthianized. When people would become Corinthianized, it was actually heard that people had become Corinthianized, which meant you had become grossly immoral. And this church had become Corinthianized. And there were some issues because of the worldly influence, the cultural influences. And Paul was concerned, so he addresses it. The first thing he addresses, we've already read it, is the conflict in the church. He said in verse 11, it's been told to me, brethren, Christians, by them which are at the house of Chloe, that there are contentions. It's, it's a word for rivalries among you. Some of you say, I'm from Paul, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. He's been told by this leader in the church that there's some rivalries, some contentions. And so he addresses this conflict in the church that can still happen today if we're not careful. I don't need to spell out ways this happens. I could. 
Jesus dealt with it. Jesus dealt with the word coming back to him in the, New Test- in the Gospels to where, um, hey, have you heard Jesus? Some are saying this and this and this about John the Baptist. They were troublemakers in Jesus' day. And they approached Jesus and they said, this would make this sermon longer, so I'm just going to talk about it real quickly. And they approached him and said, do you realize there are some people following John instead of you because you didn't baptize them? And this is kind of what's happening here. That only happens, church, that only happens. That's only allowed to happen when you get loose with doctrine. When you don't preach and teach doctrine and theology where people understand that it's not your opinion, but it's God's opinion, you don't have that happening. And when you have that happening, you address it because it's a symbol, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity. And I'll say this again, and I'm not being angry or mean, but one of the most disappointing things that I've ever seen in churches plural, is when older, supposedly more mature, both in age and their spirituality, are the ones causing these types of divisions. They know better if they're spiritually mature. Now, if I've been saved 60 years, but I'm acting like I've never been saved, there's a couple questions to ask, but you're causing, you're a detriment to the church. You're a detriment to the health of the church. And God forbid that should ever happen with an older, wiser, more mature person who's been saved longer than some people have been alive. The burden's on you. The light is on you to be examples and to mentor and to be someone that a kid or a young adult says, I want to be like that when I grow up. That's the burden that's on some of you or some of us older folks that have been in church a while and ought to know better. We're more progressively sanctified and ought to show it and speak it and teach it. So these rivalries are happening. So under the umbrella of this conflict, he calls them to consistency. He calls them to unity. It's never been, it can never be overstated the importance of unity in a church. He says, I urge you, I beseech you, verse 10, brethren, he uses that word often and specifically, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. There be no divisions among you. I'm calling on you. I'm urging you to be of the same mind, to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. This speak the same thing means to have the same testimony. The same mind and judgment is the same understanding, the same convictions. He's urging them to be in unity with a testimony, with their convictions. Be in the same mind. Say the same thing. I'm trying not to just... um, wander around in this and honestly some of this I don't have in my notes to really address but I'll give you an example when um, I'll give you an example that just happened this week I'm an elected official on a local school board you know that most of you 
Now I'm the chairman of that board. And um, for seven years now, I've consistently griped that sometimes we're the last people to know stuff. But the community, the voters, the taxpayers, they think you make every decision under the sun. And you know about everything. Well, there's a lot of decisions to be made, and we don't know a lot about it. And my biggest frustration is to find out from the Salisbury Post a decision's been made, and I didn't even know about it. And it does happen. And um, so I've been an advocate for at least make us aware, I'm going somewhere with this, so that we're all on the same page. So that when a parent calls me like they did this week and says, who's the, they didn't cuss me, it was just not, who are the people making these decisions to close or to cancel um, athletics? I know this person well, and they were indicating that I was part of that decision. I was offended highly because I'm very easily offended. That's why I'm a pastor. It's a prerequisite. And I was like, well, you can know it's the tool board because that's the first I've heard about it. Now, for this example, and to be in total clarity and transparency, this person had their information mixed up. Um, but Cabarrus County Schools had already made a decision, and it affected them because they were playing. And then I talked to him yesterday, and I was like, you made me look bad. But immediately, I text the superintendent, I'm like, tired of this mess. I didn't say it like that. We got to be on the same page. So at least when the community member, taxpayer, parent comes up and says, what about this and this and this? I can not only say I didn't make that decision, but I can at least know about it. So there's, you ready? Unity. We at least understand. We know. We're on the same page. So here it is. Um, you're in a conversation at your um, book club, not your Christian book club, your Oprah book club, and y'all are reading uh, an ungodly book and talking about it. And somebody says, uh, well, what, what do you think? Do you think, um, do you think God will let those peaceful Muslims that really believe in Allah and serve him and pray three times a day toward Mecca, but they, they got it wrong when they get to heaven and stand before God. Do you really think God will let them in or do you really think God will send them to hell? And you, because you're influenced by the power of Oprah, say, well, I believe God is love and he's merciful and grateful and he'll, I think he'll understand. But, but, the, but the person at the, the Christian book club I don't know that these exist. Nobody would be thinking. The person, and, and the same question comes up, and that person says, no, absolutely not, because Jesus is the only way to heaven. I'm the way, I'm the truth and life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And both of these people, you've already got a picture. You've got what they look like, who they are, right? They've got to be female because no boy goes to a book club, right? And they're both asked, well, where do you go to church? And they both say Central Baptist. Do you see the problem? It's not about, I like carpet, I like hardwood. It's about doctrinal issues that one person just said, Jesus is the only way, and the other person just said, God is love, let them all in. And this is what's happening. And that's a, a small but yet important example of what's happening in this church to where it even becomes, it's not just doctrinal, it's social. And that's where we find ourselves a lot today. And if we're not careful, we'll be, there'll be disunity 
on social issues that are addressed in the scriptures. But when we're all of the same mind and we're all of the same testimony, I'm, listen, I'm feeling some feedback. Let me clarify. I'm not saying you got to think like the pastor thinks. I'm saying you got to think like the scripture says think. That's how we stay. That's how we are all, that's math, common denominator. We know it all stops here. And this is the, this is our guide. This is our fundamental principles. This is what we live on. And when the whole church believes this, that it's inspired by God from beginning to end, and it's good for doctrine, for, for reproof, for correction, for instruction on in all righteousness. When we believe this in unity together, but yet in unity together, we understand that we don't have all the answers and all of us don't know it all the same way. But we believe this, whatever the book says, that's where I'm going to go. So when we get stuck at that book club and they ask a tough question that you think can be answered doctrinally, which probably can say, you know, I'm not sure about that. I have my own opinions, but let me see what God's word says. If you go to that answer, we can all still be in unity. Somebody calls me often or texts me often. Is there a policy for this in the school system? Well, we got a website that's got all the policies. Have fun looking for it. I had somebody call me two weeks ago and said, where's all that information at about COVID and the numbers? And it's hard for me to to be gentle and kind all the time. I mean, I try my best. I'm like, if you go to the website, there's this big red bar at the top that says COVID updates. If you click on it, and I have to say it in a nice way, it's like, it's in an obscure red color. It's hard to find. It's only on the front page. The policies in this case are the policies in this case. We go by the policies. Might not like the policies. Policies might hurt my feelings. I wish they'd change the policies. Well, these policies don't work the same way board policies work. These policies are secure and they're everlasting. And when we, even if we don't know all the policies, we believe the policy handbook. And we refer people to the policy handbook. Is it all right? I mean, I know some churches now, they've kind of they've got in touch with the 21st century. And um, how do you feel about, I don't know how comfortable, how do you feel about ordaining women to be pastors? You know what? It, y'all probably know how I feel. But that's not what's important. If I share my feelings about it, I'm not only going to offend you, I'm going to tick you off. <laughs> but if I say, you know what, that's a good question. Actually, it's not for a Christian, but a Bible-believing Christian. But let me just be nice and say, well, that's a good question. Let's go to the Word of God and see what He says about it. Because it's spelled out clearly. You can call me whatever you want to call me. You can say, and you're not because we're all of the same mind and same opinion and speaking the same thing. Amen. But the world or a, a church like Corinth could say, I can't believe, man, he is just stuck in the 1900s. Yeah. 
No, I'm, I'm stuck in the, um, when was the Pauline epistles written? 50s? I'm stuck in the 50s. Not the 1950s, but the 50s. I go back farther than you thought I was stuck. Because it's the Word of God, and it's not my opinion. It makes it simple, and we have unity because we go back to the Word of God. Well, well, I know, I, I get the pastor saying, but what about deacons? Well, you're in luck because it's in there too. He calls for unity and consistency. And then he calls, or he gives in verse 13, three, I love Paul for this reason, um, questions to consider. I don't have to elaborate on it because he does a pretty good job in one verse. He asks these questions. Who, the, the questions don't need an answer. Don't you like those questions? Don't even try. I ask. It's tough being a preacher and pastor's kid because there's tons of examples. <laughs> but sometimes I ask questions that don't need an answer because the question does the work. Y'all know where I'm at? Don't you dare answer that question. That wasn't. You're not smart enough to know I didn't need it. No, I don't say Maybe I do. And Paul says, hey, y'all got, got some problems. You got some divisions. You got four different guys you're pulling for. It. By the way, I look at that and I'm like, I thought Jesus trumped everything. But these guys are so immoral, so messed up that they're saying Paul and, Apostle, and Apollos and, and Jesus. I didn't, I didn't think they were in the same, like continent. But this is how messed up they are. And, and Paul says, is, is Jesus, is Christ divided? He's asking this question because he has taught them. He founded this church on sound biblical doctrine, on the gospel, on inspiration. And he knows the answer. He knows how they've been taught. Just like he knows when he goes to, back to church and he says, hey, what, what have y'all been doing for 20 years? I came to give you T-bone, but you're still drinking Similac. What have y'all been doing? How have you not grown any? And now he's here and he's saying, is Jesus divided? They know the answer. Was Paul, was I crucified for you? They know the answer. Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? How foolish is that? He's asking questions that need no answer. So he addresses the conflict, and then he talks about his call. We see the clarity of the call for Paul and really for the church. He says, Jesus didn't send me to baptize. He's not saying baptism's not important. We talk about that later, and we see other writings of Paul that address that. He says, he didn't call me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So we see his call to preach is to preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 9, when Saul is converted... And then he has to go to Ananias. Y'all know, hopefully you know, it's in Acts chapter 9. And Ananias is like, do you know this guy? And, and God says to Ananias, um, the Lord says to him in verse 15 of chapter 9, go thy way for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. When Paul was saved and he was transformed, he was given a duty and a call to preach the gospel. We are called 
as a church, as individuals, to preach the gospel. The call is clear. We're not called to fix all the problems in the world, although we, me, you, some of us like to try to do that. We're called to preach the gospel. We do a lot of things here great. We do a lot of, we have a lot of ministries, and I think we should. I, my, my goal, my plan, the vision is to have ministries for every part of the family from birth to death and have something for everybody to be a part of. And there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with that is when we take those ministries and allow them to become precedent over the call to preach the gospel. That's our call. And Paul had a clear call to preach the gospel. But what's interesting in this text is he was called specifically to the presentation of the gospel. And there's a lot here, and I won't spend a ton of time because I want to get to my, my last point. But he was told in verse 17, he said, he called me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. This is important to understand, and, and I hope we can grasp really what God is saying to us and what Paul is saying to the church. I was called to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. To me, it speaks of the reality of making the gospel clear. We don't have any obligation, any duty, any need to try to word up the gospel. To make it, the word there is kind of referred to as eloquent. Of course, we try to speak clear, competently, scholarly, doesn't hurt. Dialect doesn't necessarily affect your scholarly approach. Have y'all figured that out? I know some people that sound like the backwoods fell off a pumpkin truck, but they're bright. It's like if your dialect could collect, you know, catch up to your intellect, we'd be in business. I feel that way sometimes because I know I'm a genius, but I just don't sound like it. I need to enunciate clearly. And again, there are people that enunciate eloquently, but they're dumb as a box of hammers. So it goes both ways. He's called to present the gospel clearly. You say, well, that's obvious. Well, it should be obvious to a Baptist church member or somebody sitting in a Baptist church. But think of the eloquent, flowery, flowery presentations that abound today to where and you understand, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, even though they're true, dilute the cross and the gospel. They, they should supplement one another. Yeah, there's grace. Yes, God is a God of grace. Yes, he's a God of mercy, not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what we don't deserve. But grace and mercy really don't have any power or authority until you understand the cross and the need for grace and the need for mercy. That you and I were born into sin, born separated from God, according to the book, 
according to the policy manual, according to Romans and the Word of God, that you and I, because of Adam and Eve and creation and understanding why creation is important to believe, because of their sin, that death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, so that all people were born on the path to destruction. All people were born as present tense, the person who is living a life headed for destruction. But God commended His love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Yes, they supplement each other, but when we allow God's love to allow anybody into His heaven, surely grace and mercy will abound with the person who got it wrong for their whole life and accepted some other way to salvation. That's when the cross is of no effect. That's when we dilute the message of the cross. Because the message of the cross is his substitutionary death. He took my place. He died a real death, an ugly, undeserved death on the cross because of the ugliness of my sin. When we get up and we start painting this beautiful picture of a of naked baby angels with wings and, and Jesus and looking all sweet and rosy with his little sheep, and miss the power of the cross. And we start offering this, anybody can go to heaven, just come on in. God loves you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Oh, see how I use that? He loves me no matter who I am and what I've done. But I still have to make a decision to follow him and accept his grace and accept his mercy. See, there's a, there's a transaction that has to take place before you get there. That's what we're missing a lot of times. Oh, come on, whoever, oh, you've done this, you're done, you live this type of lifestyle? Well, you know, it's 2022. You're not sure if you're a man? Hey, it's all right. It's all right. God lets anybody in, whosoever. Yeah, he does, but you gotta make the decision here. You can't get there and him say, come on in. And that's how we dilute the message. What he says right here, Let the cro- lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. We preach love, grace, and mercy, and that's it. Without the cross, without repentance, without sin, then we dilute the power of the cross. And it's pointless. He has a call to preach and a call to present it. And then we conclude with verse 18. We're called to preach a clear, concise gospel message. First word of verse 18 says, for, or because. Listen, I want you to set this up because this is the best part of this. It's the most important part of this. Best might not be the right word. We are to preach a clear gospel message. For, because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them who perish. If you're a, a witnesser, you've experienced this. You've been turned down. You haven't been turned down, but they refuse the gospel. If you're someone who witnesses often, then you've experienced where I'm going with this. Because not everybody says, I'll sign up. Want to be saved today? 
Thanks for telling me, waiting on somebody. You know, we hear those great testimonies, but not everybody has that testimony where somebody was sitting there reading Isaiah. You know, I'm glad you came by. Who, who is this talking? Well, I'm glad you were reading Isaiah. That worked out perfect. That's the Ethiopian eunuch, just in case you were wondering. But it could happen, and it does happen. But that doesn't always happen that way. He says the preaching of the cross, this clear gospel message, is foolishness to those who are living on the road to destruction, who are perishing. For God loved the world so much that he gave you the only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. What does that mean? Die? No, we're all going to die. Perish is stronger than death. It's dying without hope. It's dying lost. There's hope while you're living. But there's no hope for the lost person after they're dead. It's another way we dilute the cross is allowing denominations and religions to teach that there's hope after death, even for a lost person. And why'd he die on the cross? That word foolishness there is the word we get absurdity. So I use it in my notes because I like to do that. We see the absurdity of the cross. To a person who is perishing, who is dying, who is not a believer, this message is absurd. It comes from some more interesting words. It's like the word we have, silly. It comes from a root word that's dull or what we would say stupid. I'm careful how I share this. I know my wife gets nervous when I say that probably. But I get nervous too. There were three funerals this week, two in this church and one at the graveside in the mausoleum. And because I love Ronnie and Nancy and that family, I'm going to say this part to make it clear. This did not happen in their service. But on two occasions this week in a service, in two separate occasions this week, this was not my impetus for writing and preaching this sermon either. God just orchestrated this. Nobody, I haven't told anybody this. But two different occasions this week. By the way, I'm just going to lay out some philosophical truths. Funerals are for the living, not the dead. When a person dies, like Nancy Morton, who's born again, and her lips and her life attest to that fact, it's a, it's a whole different ballgame. I'm not saying... For those of you taking copious notes at the other two, I'm just saying because they're faithful members of this church and I love them dearly, I'm clarifying. But I preach the gospel. The other two, I talk to people and I'm getting print and they're like, hey, can you, there'll be lost people there. Even Ronnie, his, he said, I don't have lost cousins. I make sure, I say, hey, I, I'm going to weave in the gospel or I'm not going to stand up. But please take this seriously and with some discernment. But on two occasions this week, while I was not only reading gospel scripture and specifically addressing the need for salvation, 
I watched. I can draw their faces if I could draw. I watched on two different occasions, on two different days, someone laugh directly in my face. You can't make this up. And immediately, because I, I don't just study on Saturday, this passage comes to my mind. To those who are perishing, this message is foolish, silly. I'm going to go a step further because I think it's edifying and it helps us. On both occasions, and this is live and this will be in perpetuity, but this is important. On both occasions, not making this up, can't make this up, both parties, one that was sitting in front of me, about right, one that was sitting to my, both occasions, both, if we're going to be honest, it's four different people. One person right here, two people right here on one occasion. One person to my right on a separate occasion. All four people, all four people were living a lifestyle that's directly contrary to what God says in this word. I'm not saying they were sinners because we're all sinners. I'm saying they were living a lifestyle where God says, one man, one woman. Two people in my center. I mean, one person center, I see her right now, eyeballing me and laughing at a funeral while I'm preaching the gospel. Not me, not screaming, not yelling, not slobbering, not hellfire and brimstone, but simple message of hope. To those who are perishing, this message is silly, pointless, stupid. You believe that man believes that mess? You think he really believes that? Laughing at each other, looking at each other and snickering and laughing. And what I wanted to do, thank God I didn't do. But what I wanted to do is what I found next in my notes. I wanted, and, I, and I, I'm trying to do this in a spiritual way. I was like, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because I know it's the power of God unto salvation. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, to those who are perishing, it's foolishness, it's futile, it's silly. But to those of us who have been saved, it's the power of God. If you've been saved, you understand this message isn't silly. This message isn't stupid. This message isn't absurd. This message is the power of God because you knew you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You knew you were headed for destruction. You knew you were headed for what the Bible says is a place of eternal torture and torment and hell separated from God forever. You knew that you had, in your own mind, sinned far too much for any perfect loving God to ever save you. But the power of the gospel, the power of the cross revealed to you God's love for you and you as a believer understand it's the power of God this is not silly it's the power of the cross that a loving God 
would love a dirty old worm like me, the songwriter said, enough to send his perfect baby boy to live a life like you and me in a sin-cursed world, to be laughed at. Imagine how this teenage Jesus was laughed at and ridiculed, to be laughed at, to be mocked, to be persecuted, and ultimately to be killed when his own friends and his own enemies said he never did anything but good. But yet he was beaten and drugged to an old rugged cross and killed. so that you and I might be made known the righteousness of God. And to a person who understands the nature of sin, the power of sin, and the penalty for sin, to where I deserved that death on the cross, I deserved the ridicule, I deserved the torture, my sin deserved the, the killing, but he who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might be able to stand before God as righteous as if I had never sinned. That's the power of the cross. To a person who's born again, that's anything but silly. It's life or death. You understand everybody doesn't believe that way. It's a controversial cross. Today, one or two people one of two opinions about the cross exists in this room and online and all over the world. But where do you stand? Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I thank you again for your word that's so clear. God, I pray right now the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit has been moving in hearts and lives. God, once again, and I've been reminded over and over through preparation and preaching that we are undeserving. I was undeserving. And in understanding that, being grateful for your grace and your mercy, your salvation. My desire and my prayer is that every born-again Christian in this room, every person that knows that they're saved, that's listening, watching, understand the power of the cross. That it is the power of God unto salvation. And may we as believers not be ashamed as easy as it would be in this crazy, ungodly, anti-Christ culture that we live in, as easy as it would be to cower down and be ashamed. May we say like Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's the power of God into salvation. May we be grateful in our own hearts for your salvation and may we be willing to Share this powerful gospel with the world. And again, I pray if there's a person here today 
They're perishing. They're headed for destruction. They're on the broad path. They know it. They've never made you Lord of their life. They've never accepted salvation, accepted the gift of salvation, grace, and mercy. God, may today be the day that they see that need clearly. The Holy Spirit convicts them and they see that apart from you, there is no life. Apart from you, there is no abundant life. Apart from you, there is no eternal life. And may today be the day that they make a, the most important decision they've ever made, and that's to get on the narrow road through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. While we sing, if you're here today and you need to make a decision to follow Christ, I'd love to talk to you. We're just old-fashioned enough around here. We believe in old-fashioned altars. If you need to come to an altar and pray, for whatever reason, come do that. If you're lost today and need to be saved, I'd love to talk to you. One of our pastoral staff would love to talk to you, pray with you. If you're just here today and need to pray, do business with God while we sing. Come do that. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.